0: Welcome to All About Agatha. This is part two of our very first episode about Agatha Christie's very first novel, The Mysterious Affair at Styles. I'm Kemper Donovan, here with my co-host Catherine Brobeck, and to wrap up Styles, we're going to be speaking about the television adaptation of the novel and our ranking system for this book and all of Christie's books to come. Also, a brief programming note. In the future, we'll be doing one episode per novel, and our plan is to put out these podcasts regularly, once a week. We encourage our listeners to read the novels before downloading each episode, even if they've read them before. And we realize that a novel a week can be a tall order. So we'll be peppering our schedule with some extras along the way. Short stories Christy published, for example, or special occurrences in her life. Say, oh, a real-life disappearance leading to a countrywide manhunt. We have so much more to come. And now, let's get back to Styles. So let's move on to the um, adaptation of Mysterious Affair Styles and just a note on adaptations in general because obviously a big part of christy and christy fandom are the adaptations of her novels and there are a lot of them so just in general on this podcast we're only going to discuss film and television adaptations not the stage and radio adaptations unless for some reason those adaptations are particularly notable so for the mysterious affair at styles uh, we have a pretty simple situation there was just one adaptation released by itv in the uk um, and as many listeners will know, they actually um, adapted every single Poirot story that Christie wrote uh, between 1989 and 2013. And in the U.S., uh, these aired on PBS as part of the much-loved Mystery! series. Um, so getting into uh, this ITV Poirot starring the incomparable David Suchet as Eric Poirot and Hugh Fraser as Arthur Hastings... Um It's interesting that this actually was not the first adaptation. It wasn't until the third season that it was adapted as the first episode. Um, and honestly, having having rewatched the episode after having reread the novel recently, I was pretty impressed by how faithful um the adaptation really is. There are a few streamlining cuts that are made very quickly. There's no Dr. Bauerstein, which is honestly not a huge loss. Also
1: because um, this is a, an anti Semitic caricature.
0: <laughs> he is absolutely we will we, which we will get to in a little bit. Um cynthia a lot of the red herring business of about cynthia and the books and her working at a dispensary is uh dispensed pun intended even though it's not really a pun (laughs) um and then and also mrs inglethorpe in the in this adaptation is the natural mother of john and lawrence cavendish not their stepmother um and honestly, I would add that it seems like Christy herself forgot that distinction by the time she wrote *Curtain*, which is her last Poirot, uh and which takes and place at book. Styles. Yeah, yeah. And her last book. Um, and uh, so I'm I'm not going to um, be too hard on ITV for not making that distinction. Um, so, I guess uh, is there anything, Catherine? What do you how do you feel about this adaptation?
1: I think what do you want to say you know, about it? I, I am <laughs> The weird thing is... So... Okay, I'm restarting this. Um, so, unlike you, uh, I saw the television series before I ever read the books because the television series I used to watch, like, sitting against my mom when I was, like, a small child. And... So some of these I had to revisit. It's
0: like a painting. I can imagine a a painting of domestic bliss. Yeah,
1: it just is exactly, exactly that. (laughs) Like Murder, She Wrote and Mystery on PBS. Anyway, yes, apparently just like domestic bliss was watching people get offed. (laughs) Um, (laughs) um, So this really swayed me. Uh, because by the time I started reading them, I had spent years watching them. And so, for me, I actually have no uh, visual interpretation of what Captain Hastings or Poirot look like that aren't Hugh Frazier and David Suchet. And mm-hmm. no matter how hard I try, as a reader, to picture them differently... I can't. It's not possible. This is like burned into yeah. my brain from the time I was like a small child. So, for me, watching it was yeah. like, oh yes, here, here, yes, this is exactly right. This is exactly like what I read. This is it. But, yeah, this, this is the story. This is the story <laughs> because it almost was hard for me to actually even parse the differences because, yeah, I mean, oh well, my brain goes into a lock at seeing those two actors and um, seeing Philip Jackson as Inspector Jack, who let's talk about, Even he's, though not descri- he's des- described as, I think weasel faced, right?
0: Yeah, He's described as little, I think dark, little and ferret like yeah. um, in the book, which I was shocked by too, because I mean, I did, I, unlike Catherine, I, I did read the books before I watched the adaptations for, if not all of them, then the majority of them. Um, but David Suchet and Hugh Frazier, I think both because they're as good as they are and um, because every single... Possible Poirot story has been adapted. Have really overtaken my visual as well. Not the same. Not the case with Miss Marple, which we'll get to because there there are so many different Miss Marple. Even I feel
1: differently about that. But um, I can't. I can't say that about Poirot. Um, So even when I watched later on the 1970s Albert Finney as Poirot, Murder on the Orient Express, feature film with mm -hmm. famous people. I had a very hard time thinking that that was Poirot because for me, David Suchet is Poirot. He's been Poirot almost as long as I've been alive. And that, that is, I think, a significant achievement. and I think it's a significant factor into the popularity and the ongoing popularity of uh, the books. And so watching watching styles, like I actually had a bit of a hard time being objective, because for me they were just acting out. You know, well,
0: exactly what the story was. Well, (laughs) so I have two things to say to that. Um, One is um, there's this article that um, Lucy Mangan wrote for The Guardian, uh, it's actually quite a a while ago. It was on uh, the 1st of October in 2010, but she, um, at that point, it was the uh, uh, 120th anniversary of Agatha Christie's birth and um, she went to a Christie festival and she uh, was struck by the fact that Christie fans don't really differentiate between those who have just watched the adaptations um, and those who have read the books. And that is unusual. Uh, It's not necessarily the case uh, among other author fan clubs and Uh, festivals and whatnot. I I
1: I would make an argument just because of course I'm going to make this argument. Um, the The only other exception to that, I think, is Inspector Morse. It's for similar reasons. and I mean, it's not that like they're having an Inspector Morse festival, but the fact that literally there are mm-hmm. still versions. This endeavor is still on the air. And um, that a lot of people who really, really are committed to its continued run possibly have never read the Colin Dexter books. You know but I mean I think that
0: right, I think that right. I think that
1: those are maybe the only two exceptions to this
0: right no I'm saying it's unusual yeah I were I watched the TV series and and people say that's cool
1: right yeah and you're just like <laughs> yeah no you you're you're a Christie fan
0: right and I'll be and I will be honest and I guess this comes from the fact that I read the books before the TV show and even though I'm an a uh, huge devoted fan to the suchet, and, and various adaptations. I, I kind of think that's crap. I think if you're a true Agatha Christie fan, you need to read the books. Just going to say it. Uh, I, I,
1: I, I disagree with you, but... Um, Fair enough. I disagree with you, but I do understand your point. I mean, I actually am going to be completely honest. I feel a little bit that way with people who say that they read a book and it turns out they listen to it on Audible. I think that there is an important factor almost to me to read the Christie books in print. And it's partially the illustrations and no good e mm-hmm. reader, reader versions, but also because I think this goes with me towards the adaptation that when I read them, my mom owned all of them in like 1970s paperbacks from when she was in college. And I will one hundred percent admit that uh, the tagged, highlighted version of the mysterious ferret styles that I read when we did this podcast was sent to me by my mom, and it was the same version. It's the exact same book that I read when I was probably in fourth grade. And
0: wow,
1: yeah, and I mean, and so there's a tactileness to, you know, reading. A uh, sort of aged paperback and there's a tactileness to the adaptation and mm-hmm. it's mm-hmm. N- thoroughly unmodern right it has none of the gloss it has pretty high production values for being 1980s or early 1990s british television um mm-hmm. they clearly invested money in the production It has a sense of place, not in that it depicts styles necessarily as having a sense of place, but the actual show has this sense of time to it that you, like, can completely situate it within this context of PBS.
0: Yeah. 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 Does that make sense? Well, and it's actually really, in- yeah, absolutely. And it's really, it is interesting that we're starting with the, with, it may not be the only one, but it's one of the few of these Poirot adaptations that does not actually take place in 1936 because ITV essentially just made the decision to set all of the Poirot's in the same mid-war year which I think was a great idea because it did give them this it, it, it created a sense of place for the series as a whole and it gave it a, this sense of continuity that's that's very comforting and it's just so easily identifiable and I feel like Christie would herself would have been a, would have been a fan of that, but the books certainly. I mean, the books change with the times depending on when that book was written, and that's that's a big difference. But Styles is the one book is the one adaptation rather that is actually set in the time in which um, it was it, the book is set, which is of course during World it's War One. It's
1: jarring almost because their clothes are so much different than the clothes that you would be used to. In the rest of the run of the show,
0: yeah,
1: and well, except for
0: Poirot, Poirot always looks the same.
1: Well, because I mean, his suit, his <laughs> suit must smell so bad. I mean, like imagine, oh like God. how many, how many versions of that suit do you think Poirot owns? Because I can't imagine very many, and I can't imagine that there was like super heavy, like heavy laundering. By him. I mean, he gets, if if memory serves, he gets a, um, quote unquote, valet in later novels, or at least in the TV show, mm-hmm. maybe not in the books,
0: but at least in the television show. In, certainly in the TV series, that Georges, yes. the valet, uh-huh. appears. I don't know if he does in the books. I don't know that he does in the Find books out. either.
1: Uh, but saying that we literally never see Poirot in a different outfit. It's He's true. a little bit like, it's um, true. I so, imagine him as like, um, Doug from the 1990s television series, Doug, where Doug would open his closet and it would just be like the same cartoon green sweater vest and like khaki shorts.
0: <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, or like how Smurfette had, had a rack of the same dresses, like her closet yeah, was exactly. just,
1: like right. a rack Yeah, of, it's a cartoon yeah. character
0: trope. Um... Okay, so two things I just want I just wanna cover and this and and my apologies because this is so pedantic, but we know for sure again, we went over the fact that dates are extremely important in this book, and there is no question that the murder happens on July seventeenth. We later learn from Curtin, the last book, that the year, which is not mentioned at any point in the Mysterious Affair of Styles, even though we know we're in the middle of over one, but we, we find out unequivocally that from Curtin that the year was 1916. So this murder happened on July 17th, 1916. And yet, in this adaptation, when the, there's sort of a statement being read out in court, the date of the murder is stated unequivocally as being June 19th, 1917. And I just thought that was weird. That's all.
1: I mean, um, I, guess, I, oh. I guess they weren't tracking continuity.
0: I guess they weren't, and I might be the only person that cares. Um, the other thing I just want to point out, uh, and then perhaps this is kind of obvious, but that's also kind of the point, is that um, the scene in which Hastings talks about wanting to be a detective and having met Poirot, who who was a detective that he knows um, is reproduced very faithfully in this adaptation with the exception of the fact that Sherlock Holmes is not mentioned at all and it, you know the it's funny that in the book as as you were saying Catherine she's using Sherlock Holmes as a shorthand almost to telegraph to readers okay this is what you're going to get certainly by the early 90s <laughs> to people watching the Mysterious Affair at Styles at home um, there was no reason to mention Holmes to telegraph anything because Christie had already become a brand in and of herself. So, there we go. So, there were also two scenes um, I wanted to highlight um, mainly for their comedic uh, elements. Um, one is this tender moment between po- Poirot and Hastings when Poirot pastes the beard um, that was used to impersonate Alfred Englethorpe onto Hastings's face. And It's weird, so let's take a listen to that.
1: Good lord.
0: Uh
1: Uh-huh. Hold it up to your face, Hastings. Do you think it's the one? And exactly to the same shape as the piece of Monsieur The question is, who put it there?
0: It strikes me as this very, to use a 21st century term, bromantic moment, um, homoerotic, if you will, and I, I can't help wondering uh, if there were to be another kind of Suchet-Fraser pairing now, if it wouldn't be as unabashedly homoerotic as, for example, the Cumberbatch-Freeman pairing is in Sherlock.
1: Well, I would like to uh, alert you to the fact that if you Google for Poirot-Hastings fanfiction, you get a lot of it that's, like, very G-rated, like, solving an investigation. <laughs> but let me just point out, somebody heard your uh, Cumberbatch-Freeman-Sherlock uh, romance comment and yeah, yeah they yeah. took it. They took it to the NC seventeen level.
0: Yeah, so go- Google at your peril. <laughs>
1: don't don't Google. <laughs> not not recommended unless you want your eyes to burn out. Do not recommend. <laughs> <laughs> I think the answer. To, I think um, the answer to your question is no, because the entire essence of Poirot is so asexual. That is counterintuitive. I suppose.
0: I suppose. I think it would at least be a, there would be an undercurrent of discomfort at some point somewhere, perhaps. It's just, they don't even go there. At any point in the series, which is, I, I mean, it's it's part of what's so charming about the series. Well,
1: they, they sort of they um, sort of frame it, they frame it a little bit, I believe, in the later episodes that it always seems that perhaps Captain Hastings has a bit of an, uh, you know, bit of affection for Miss Lemon.
0: Mm, or, that ha- or
1: that somebody. I don't know
0: some- if I ever you'd ever I don't know if I ever thought that.
1: No. Well I guess maybe she's the only woman in most of the adapt cases, <laughs> so I just assumed. <laughs> <laughs> Shout out um, to Pauline so, Moran.
0: <laughs> yeah. So the other thing I, I the other scene I wanted to highlight was the uh, at the climax of the of the story when Poirot outs the murderers, Alfred and Evelyn In the book, it it certainly is a is a dramatic scene. And by the way, just just a sidebar here, but in the original version of the novel, um, Christie actually had Poirot revealing everything in court through testimony and all the readers for. Which would make more sense, but apparently her rendering of the trial overall was so. Um, rang so false to readers and just seemed so inauthentic that they asked for that scene to be um, taken out of the trial so Christy apparently just lifted it and plopped it into a drawing room uh, but of course that became a staple of the genre so it's interesting that that was a um, staple the of, of every publishers.
1: single one of her books
0: yeah yeah so at in that in that scene um in the uh, adaptation, it's a little bit more over the top than it is in the book.
1: All right. We love each other. Take them away, Inspector Chap.
0: Do you think we were going to sit and wait for the old bitch to die?
1: We deserve the money anyway. And I'm not sorry.
0: I'm not the least little bit sorry.
1: Yeah, I mean, um, I think they, so I think I they just... needed a dramatic lift at the end, right?
0: Sure. I don't know if calling her the old bitch and caressing an evil and caressing Alfred's tummy in a sort of... A awkward fashion with a close-up on the caressing was entirely necessary, but <laughs> it's one of those weird over-the-top moments that you kind of get with well, series the series the, sometimes, and it the makes me love the it. The only
1: other thing <sighs> that I would note is that um, the first time we're introduced to her uh, on camera, she's forefronted when Hastings isn't. And it's also the first introduction to the uh, house. So, I mean, Mm -hmm. they're very clearly telegraphing her significance from Mm -hmm. literally the first shot that she's in, in a Mm -hmm. way that the book Mm -hmm. does not do. It's
0: interesting. Um, Okay, so we're finally at the final section of uh, the podcast, Um, ranking. So here's, here's what we're trying to do with the ranking. Um, and I'm actually going to uh, turn again to our favorite curmudgeon, Edmund Wilson, who had a rather succinct uh, but effective statement for what makes a good detective novel. Here's what he said. It is not difficult to create suspense by making people await a revelation, but it does demand a certain talent to come through with a criminal device which is ingenious or picturesque or amusing enough to make the reader feel that the waiting has been worthwhile so that's what we're really um ranking here i think or at least i think that's what what's at the heart of it was was it worth it you know was it worth going through the contortions of the mystery puzzle to get to the other side and get to the solution do we feel like this was time well spent and um, since we're going through all of, all 66 of Agatha Christie's novels, um, we thought that actually assigning a numerical value um, would be the easiest way to keep track of how they stack up against each other. So here's how we're going to do it. We've got um, five different elements of the story that we are going to score on a scale of 1 to 10. The first one, which I'll take, is uh, Mystery Puzzle Mechanics. And what that's asking is, are the clues fairly presented? Um, are there so many red herrings, for example, thrown in that, that's, that it's ridiculous, which is certainly not the case in styles. Um, does solving the clues require such expert knowledge that it doesn't seem fair? That's where I have a little bit of an issue with the bromide powders. Um, are there any logic mistakes? Perhaps my the error that I think I uncovered with John Cavendish not noticing Cynthia's door didn't open up uh, could be a, a mistake. Is the solution pleasingly clever? Uh, in the case of Styles, I would say it's extremely clever. We not only have a double bluff, but a double jeopardy situation going on, um, so, I would, w- I would say that on the whole, for Mystery Puzzle Mechanics, style scores an 8 out of 10.
1: So Catherine? then we're going to talk about credibility. As in, do the theoretically human characters act <laughs> like reasonable human characters in the course of the novel? Or are the contortions such that really you just lose credibility? And, I mean, uh, Alfred Inglethorpe, just shoved the letter, like, in your pocket. You would have literally Seriously? gotten away scot-free had you not put it mm-hmm. on a counter for Acuparo to find. So, yeah, no, like, we're four out of ten. I actually would almost go lower, but I think we've agreed on four out of ten.
0: Four out of ten. I th- I, th- I think that's great. All right. Um, there's a there's a lot of good there's a lot of good human like uh, actions that come before the <laughs> H- failure to human- stuff human- a piece human- of paper in your pants. Human
1: like actions. That's uh, that's really the <laughs> parameter here. <laughs>
0: so the next two elements um are uh essentially about character but we're dividing them up into two different categories um the first are the detectives and those surrounding the detective uh, by which we mean sidekicks such as hastings or police inspectors such as jap um how are all these people rendered um, and for future novels, in in the case of Poirot, like does that novel add something interesting to what we already know about that detective, or about Hastings, or about Jap? Does it deepen that character in any way? Um, and in this case, since Styles* is the first of the Poirot books, um, the first time that we're meeting Poirot and Hastings and Jap, um, it, we can't help giving it a big score. Christy really did the heavy lifting in the story. And even though you could potentially argue that she cribbed from Holmes and Watson, um, and she did it really well. And Lestrade. <laughs> That's true. Lestrade as the, the Jap prototype. Um, she did it well. So we're going to give her an 8 out of 10 here.
1: As for the characters who are not uh, Poirot, Hastings, and Jap, the question is mm. if they're cardboardy uh, per per James. Uh, do they? P.D. James, yeah. Yeah. Do they hold our interest? Uh, I mean, no. <laughs> the <like, laughs> the answer is no. You know she wins us over because she's just granted us the privilege of having Poirot for life but um, unbeknownst to her unfortunately, unfortunately a different conversation that we can have but um, you know that carries this uh, it is not the suspects or the victims because really any emotional attachment is not there so yeah two
0: Two out of ten, mm-hmm. I think that's fair. Okay, and the, so the final category is setting and tone. Do the setting and the t- and or the tone add anything to the story? And despite that really nice floor plan of the of the bedroom floors uh, of the bedrooms on the second floor, it really doesn't. We 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 just don't get that much in terms of setting and tone. It's not terrible. We have we have the bits of humor. Again, this is the first novel. Um, our detectives are getting introduced so we're going to be kind and give it a 4 out of 10 for setting and tone
1: and then our last point yeah. is probably the trickiest and maybe we should have brought it up sooner talk
0: as I like to say we didn't save the best for last we saved we the, worst, saved
1: for the worst for last <laughs> uh, we need to talk about the, uh, the, the not timelessness we'll call it not timelessness um, sure It's a credit to Christy that there's not more of it, but there is a degree of racism and xenophobia and sexism that is a product of its time and a product of who she was, and it's hard to overlook some of it. Um, yeah, you know, some of it's...
0: A product of the world she was living in and grew up in.
1: Right. I mean, I don't think either of us thinks that she was like... I don't actually think she was like actively racist or actively sexist. I mean, she loved the Middle East. You know, she loved exploring it. I mean, admittedly, in a Great British Empire kind of way. But clearly she was a successful woman on her own. I don't think she was a sexist, but like that does not stop the fact that reading some of the passages get to be uncomfortable if you're in 2016. Yeah, um, and
0: it's not something. To, to be clear, I, I just want to add, it's not something that we're singling out Agatha Christie for. I mean, there are um, uh, the the bulk of writers from the period when she was writing. If if you go back and revisit their work, uh, which just honestly doesn't get done as often as, as Christie's is because she's more popular than everyone else, um, you'd have the same reaction. And that's why it's really this quality of being stuck in the time in which it was written. And even though we're not singling her out for it, I, I think it's fair to read that as a failure um, or a, certainly as a detriment to a book that works is working in other ways.
1: I would point out namely, um, the costume box box. The costume box is, it's really, uh, the red herring that Lawrence and Cynthia really love the costume box. They like to entertain the family with little plays they have since they were children. That's also where Poirot and Hastings find the beard that, uh, Evie used so Dorcas the beloved servant is describing the dressing up box and all of this is to the red herring plot but she says um in describing the Cavendish's performances Mr. Lawrence he's wonderful most comic I shall never forget the night he came down as the char of Persia I think he called it a sort of eastern king it was "'He had the big paper knife in his hand. "'And, mind, Dorcas,' he says, "'you'll have to be very respectful. "'This is my specially sharpened scimitar, "'and it's off with your head "'if I am at all displeased with you. "'Miss Cynthia, she was what they call an Apache, "'or some such name. "'A Frenchified sort of cutthroat, I take it to be. "'A real sight, she looked. "'You'd never have believed a pretty young lady like that "'could have made herself into such a ruffian.' Nobody would have known her. Then, two paragraphs later, uh, she mentioned uh, there was a red wig. I know, but nothing else in the way of hair. Burnt corks they used mostly, though. Tis messy getting it off. Miss Cynthia was a N-word once, and oh, the trouble she had.
0: Yeah, we've got we've got the casual dropping of the of the N-word there.
1: Yep, and also the fact that the Cavendish family had as entertainment blackface.
0: Yeah, yep.
1: <laughs> that was that was how they spent their evenings entertaining each other. So, you know, I mean, it's a little bit
0: of a problem. That's a little bit of a problem. There's also a, a bit of a through line with the farmer's widow, who is the one that keeps on getting um, mentioned as potentially having an affair with both slash either John oh, Cavendish and Alfred Inglethorpe.
1: Who is a gypsy?
0: Yeah, she's often mentioned as a gypsy, which is essentially supposed to, I think, uh, associate her with having perhaps uh, lower standards um, than a true gentlewoman. And, you know, there's a fair amount of sexism if it's coming from either Hastings' objectification of women or... Poirot, in his fussy sort of French way, is often making comments about um, about women and, you know, about Cynthia. He says she's clever. Oh, yes, she has brains, that little one, which, uh, you know, certainly comes off in a patronizing way. Um, we also. Although,
1: I think, I think, I do think Poirot, because, of course, I'm apparently the Christie Defender is this <laughs> podcast. Um, I think. I think that when Poirot generally says that when Poirot comments compliments anyone, I actually think that you should take it as a compliment. Like I think that it's intended as one yeah, it's patronizing. But like I think that Poirot actually does respect Miss Cynthia.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Mademoiselle Cynthia.
0: Yeah. It's but well, I mean that's kind of it's the just definition like, yeah, of patronizing. It just <laughs>
1: <laughs> okay, I mean too shy, <laughs>
0: too shy.
1: But but I mean it could be it could be worse. She could be disrespecting her in the way that I think that a lot of the men in this novel do treat the other women. True,
0: true. Um, um, and
1: the anti-Semitism is not great.
0: Anti-Semitism isn't great. Doctor Bowerstein is identified in a negative way by John Cavendish as being a Polish Jew. Um, and we, you know, ultimately learn about him. By the way, that he is actually a German spy. Um, again, this is happening in pre World War, you know, during World War One. Um, haven't even gotten close to World War Two yet. And and
1: <clears throat> and Ingles, and Inglethorpe, um, He is identified visually uh, as having dark hair and a dark beard and being overall slightly
0: other-ish. Yeah. I think in general, it's this sort of, and this is what, and and in some ways, not that it's, um, I, I had forgotten what this felt and sounded like until I revisited this book, but Christy, just a persona, she exemplifies this British exceptionalism and insularity, and the best way that I can get at this is there's this short little exchange between Hastings and Mary Cavendish, um, in which he, and this happens right after he learns that she's actually half Russian, and he says, "Ah, now I understand," And, and she says, "Understand what?" and he responds, "A hint of something foreign, different that there has always been about you," and it's just this idea that if you're not, if you're anything other than just full on. British, you know, to the core you're different and that's noted and not that it's necessarily a bad thing not that it means you're, that you're less of a person but it might um, and it's but, I, mean, I, think, I
1: think you need to be I think you need to be clearer about that I think it's not even that you're full on British it's that you're English
0: Yeah, that's true
1: I mean, and you know, it's Um, Hastings is an interesting vehicle to put that comment through because he just seems to constantly be trying to sort of modulate whatever it is he's saying and his position so that he fits in, right? Like, he wants to even fit in with Poirot. He gets, like, very resentful in various places when, like, his comments aren't being taken in the light that he wants them to be taken in. hmm And, I mean, I think that that's essentially almost the commentary. It's that it's, it's not that you can't have an other because clearly the hero of the story is Poirot and he is very different than anybody else.
0: Yeah it's but I that. would I would push back against that cuz I actually think that's a classic exception that proves the rule kind of a thing. It's like in general foreigners are not great but we have this one brilliant detective who yes, he happens to not be one of us but that's what makes him so interesting. It's not no, I don't I think mean, that I don't is, think that he is, is that's a, for sure
1: true. That's for sure true.
0: You know, I don't I don't think it's, she's she's sort of saying and now let's open up our minds to all of these other non-British. No,
1: no. I mean, you're you're completely. You're com- you're completely right. Uh, he he is the exception.
0: Yeah, yeah, but And I mean,
1: way. I guess that's why Sorry, he's ultimately exceptional, right? Like why she treats him as exceptional, mm-hmm. as much as she eventually comes to regret that. Um, Spo- spoiler alert! Spoiler alert! Agatha Christie eventually hated
0: Hercule Poirot and called him a <laughs> creep. But we'll get there. Yeah. <laughs> we'll get there. Um, so for, for racism, xenophobia, <laughs> sexism, again, l- lack of uh, timelessness, uh, we, out of a possible 10 points to deduct, we are going to deduct five points. So basically... The, I
1: think that's us being generous.
0: I think that is us being generous, but um, there's a whole lot more of that uh,
1: in books to come, so
0: um, so basically, in,
1: in, including the one, including the one that was titled with the end. Yes, yeah,
0: so we'll we'll get there. Um, so a perfect score would be ten, obviously ten out of ten for all five categories and zero out of ten deductions or fifty points. Um, Styles is getting eight plus four plus eight plus two plus four minus five or twenty-one, which means absolutely nothing um, because it's our first and we have nothing to compare it to. But. We will soon, um, and we invite our listeners to interact with us and let us know how their ranking may differ. Um, the best way to uh, contact us is either through email, which is at allaboutthedame at gmail.com, or through various forms of social media. You can find us on Twitter at dame. You can find Kemper at Kemper Donovan or Katherine at... Rob Cat, B R O B Cat. You can also find us on Instagram at All About The Dame. And uh, we would also please ask you to rate and review us on iTunes, which will really help us, especially in these early episodes, in terms of getting out the word. Uh, finally, we wanted to. Um, Uh, make a special thank you to Josh Blaker for designing our lovely logo we will see well
1: next week when we plan on discussing less nervously so thank you guys for tolerating us in our first podcast but when we discuss the secret adversary which is our first Tommy and Tuppence and then Damak first Tommy and Tuppence get high
0: I'm excited I like Tommy and Tuppence (laughs)
1: You would. (laughs) Bye.